Well, I've got a confession for you, something that I did in high school that I would not recommend. I know when youth pastors say that, um, you're always expecting a juicy story afterwards, but it's not a very juicy story. I went to Laguna Hills High School, and there was a little fender bender that happened in the parking lot. And um, I was one of the few people that was around. So what happened was there was a guy who backed into somebody else, and they kind of both just like backed into each other. And there was a little fender bender. And, you know, it wasn't super exciting, and I didn't think much of it. But one of the guys that got in the fender bender texted me like two days later. I didn't even have his number. I mean, I knew him from like elementary school, but I never really talked to him. And he said, this guy's name is Kevin. He said, hey, John, um, can you help me out? Can you do me a big favor? And I was like, well, what's, what's the favor? What do you want me to do? He says, hey, I want to put your name as a witness for the insurance company so that they can come and call you, and you might even have to testify of what you saw happen. And I'm like, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to do that. And he's like, hey, if you don't want to do it, it's totally fine. But like, if this goes into some type of insurance battle, like your word might be the deciding factor. I kind of sat there for a little while. I thought about it. And because he gave me an out, because he was like, oh, you don't have to if you don't want to. I was like, no, bro. Like, can you not put my name down as a witness? And uh, I never heard what happened. Okay, so it's, it's not like a super big confession. I didn't do anything like crazy wrong. But I did kind of feel bad about it because I thought, okay, the fact that I was like unwilling to testify about what happened, that actually might have made a big difference for him and whether or not he lost $1,000 or had to pay out or whether or not the insurance company took care of it or whose insurance. So I did kind of feel bad about it. I was just telling this story to Alexander the other day, and she was horrified, right? I mean, you weren't that horrified. This is how I felt. I was like, well, I don't I have to be a witness, but my wife was horrified. I'm like, you should have said, yeah, that you would testify. And I was like, well, I, I don't really remember what happened and like who backed into who. I guess it's, it's hard to say for sure. So I wasn't totally sure about the message, but I was pretty sure what I saw happen, but I was kind of too wimpy to, to testify. I wimped out. Uh, that silence probably did cost him some money, probably his parents' money, so it wasn't a huge deal. But I, I hope that you know that there are other things that if we are silent about, it will cost people a lot. And that if we don't speak up, if we're unwilling to speak the truth because it might be hard and because it might cost us something, I hope that you know that there are some things when it comes to the Christian life that we do need to speak up about. Well, God calls us to speak up about a lot of things, but this morning, I want to talk about what is most fundamental and basic for adult Christians to speak up about, and it's this, that God has called each and every one of you, if you're a Christian, he's called you to speak the gospel, the saving message of the gospel to other people, and if we shy away from that task, the Bible paints a picture that we are partially held responsible for them not knowing the truth if we're unwilling to share it, if we wimp out like I wimped out in high school. In order to do that, I want to look at a passage that does not get looked at very often when it comes to evangelism, but I think it might be instructive and helpful for you. I want you to open up to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. This is the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. It's kind of right in the middle of your Bibles. It's right here in mine. It's pretty much in the middle, a little bit to the right. Um, but Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke for God, and his task was a really bad task. If you know anything about Jeremiah, he was actually called the weeping prophet, because his life and ministry was so bad, he was constantly crying. Even at one point in his ministry, he wrote, he says, Oh, I wish that my eyes were just a fountain, that I could keep crying and weeping over the sins of my people. What happened with Jeremiah was he was born into this priestly family, and he was called to be a prophet, which was more than a priest, right? A priest was someone who represented the people, 
before God in the sacrificial system, but a prophet was someone that God uniquely picked out and says, you're going to be a spokesperson for me. Sometimes we think prophets, all they do is tell the future. Well, some prophets do that, but what prophets really are is a mouthpiece for God. Like God speaks through the prophet, and that's what he was called to do. And the time in which he was called to do this was a horrible time. The people who were religious, the people who were supposed to be the good ones, were actually the most corrupt people in the land. They were the people that were leading other people astray. It was a horrible time to be a follower of God. And Jeremiah was called to stand up and to preach against them, to tell people to turn from their sin, to repent from their sin, that means turn, and then to trust in God and to follow him. That was his role. That's why I think if we look at his call to his prophetic ministry, it might be helpful for us as we think about what is God calling us to do when we need to preach the truth to a generation that doesn't want to listen to it. Jeremiah chapter 1, look at verse 4 together. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Whenever you see the word of the Lord came to me, that doesn't mean I had an amazing thought. Or, you know what? This is what I think God wants me to do with my life. This is more than that. This is like when God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush and said, Moses, you need to let my people go. You need to bring my people out of slavery. This is a very specific call that you have not been called with. Okay? And I want to start this sermon. I know that kind of sounds, you know, maybe counterintuitive. Start the sermon by realizing you're not called to the same thing he's called to at the same time. This is unique for Jeremiah, but I think it teaches us something about what we're called to do. Jeremiah is called by the word of the Lord. Look what God says to Jeremiah specifically in verse 5. Jeremiah 1.5. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Interesting. Right? So when my son right now, Jordan, who's um, 20 weeks along... Uh, in my wife's belly. So this, this son of mine right now is being formed by God, knit together in his mother's womb. Jeremiah, or God says to Jeremiah, even before I did that for you, Jeremiah, even before I called you to, to be a person, I called you to do something big for me. Look what he says next. He says, before you were born, I consecrated you. That word consecrated sounds like a Bible word, and it is. What it means is to take something and to set it in a different category. To, to move it from the normal category to the holy category. I've consecrated you to do what? Look at the third line here. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He says, before you even knit together in your mother's womb, which says something about babies and wombs, by the way, that there are people, interesting. Um, before even that, God says, I called you to be a prophet for me. You're going to speak for me to people. Look what Jeremiah says. He says exactly what you would say or what I would say if we were called by God in this unique way. He said, then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak for I am only a youth. If he's going to be a prophet to the nations, you know what that means? That means international travel. That means speaking different languages. That means the ability to talk to kings and officials. He's like, dude, I'm 17 years old. You can't expect me to do that, God. That's what he's saying. When he says a youth, we think a youth is probably between 15 and 20. So pretty much you guys, if you're a high school student, you're pretty much the age Jeremiah was when God came to him and said, I'm calling you to be a prophet. You're going to have to go talk to kings. You're going to have to speak maybe in different languages. You're going to have to learn some things so that you can represent me all over the world and to nations all over. That's a pretty scary task. So he says, I don't know how to speak because I'm only a youth. Maybe if I went through a lot of training, maybe if I went through a a lot of things later, maybe if I went to university and learned all these languages, maybe then I could speak for you, but I can't do it right now because I'm only a youth. Look what God says. Verse 7, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. Don't give me that excuse is what God says. 
Is it true that he's a youth? Is it true that he's only 17 years old? Yeah, that's true. But he says, don't tell that to me. Why? Because he says, for to all to whom I will send you, you'll go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. You're going to do this for me. It doesn't matter that you're 17. It doesn't matter that you're 18. It doesn't matter that you think you're not equipped to do this. I am going to equip you to do this. He says in verse 8, maybe the best promise here, he says, do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. In the Bible, the most often repeated command from God's mouth is that one in verse 8. Do not be afraid. Don't fear. That doesn't mean that Jeremiah is going to have nothing to fear. Could you imagine being the one person? It's not like all of us as a group were called to share the gospel. What if you were the only one? You were the only one. You had to go to the king. You had to go to the the powerful people. And you had to say, yeah, God's going to come and take you away from your land. You're going to be held as a captive and a prisoner to a foreign land. Like, what kind of boldness would you need? That's crazy. And that's what Jeremiah says. He responds like you would respond, right? We can be sympathetic with him. But God says, no, don't be afraid of them. It's going to be scary, but you don't need to be afraid because I am with you. Then, verse 9, the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, right? Some physical, some weird thing happened here. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So this is just a reassurance. It's like, okay, if you're not sure that you have the truth for me, here's the truth for me. It's like God does something tangible and gives him these words. And now it says, verse 10, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, right? Is Jeremiah the king? No. He's actually going to get thrown down a water shaft like a well, and he's going to have to sit there for days until he's rescued because even his own people don't like him. Even his friends turn on him. He has to get saved out of these situations over and over again. How is he set over kingdoms? Well, the message that God is going to give Jeremiah is a message that we're going to continue to read today in a random place on the other side of the world thousands of years later. And his message is going to be about this. Look what it says. To pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow. Those are four terms which all refer to destruction. Like Jeremiah is going to say, hey, you're going to be destroyed. And guess what God's going to do? He's going to destroy. And then it says two other things. And to build and to plant. And that's a similar message of judgment and salvation. Right? All throughout the Bible we see this theme that God gives a message in two ways. He says this is a message of judgment for sin and salvation for others. We see it all the way back from the Noah's Ark, right? What's the story of Noah's Ark? Well, it's a story of judgment and salvation. The world gets judged, but these eight people get saved, right? The Exodus, well, the Egyptians get judged and the Israelites get saved. It's like in one act, God judges and he saves at the same time. That's what's going to happen through the exile. And frankly, guess what? That's the message that we have from God too. You realize that the gospel is a message of judgment and salvation, God is going to do something. He's going to save some, and he's going to judge others. And now what it's dependent on is whether or not you are going to submit to Jesus and be a follower of him, right? But as followers of him, we have a job to do. It's interesting that we don't live in the Old Testament times where maybe only a few people were called to speak. The amazing reality of the New Testament is if you're a Christian, you are called to speak. And if I say that, you may be like, okay, I know. Yeah, Christians are supposed to share the gospel, right? I want you to feel what Jeremiah felt, He was afraid, he was fearful, he gave some excuses, but God kept affirming him and saying, no, no, you gotta go speak. It's a similar feeling that you need to feel if you're a Christian, if you're a young Christian, um, you need to have confidence, you need to have boldness, and that's really hard to do. If you ask people, why don't you share the gospel more? Why don't you stand up for Christ more? The number one answer that you're gonna get from people is one thing, I'm afraid. And whether they're afraid of what people think, 
or whether they're afraid their reputation will get ruined or they're just flat out afraid of the person they're talking to. If all of us dig deep down, that's going to be at the core of why we don't share the truth. So here's what God does. Gives confidence. Confidence. Boldness. And he says, no, be bold. Be confident. No, speak the truth. You're going to have my words to speak. What does that have to do with us? Well, if, if you're going to share the truth for God, you need to have that same type of boldness and courage and conviction that you actually have the truth from God. You need confidence. That's why at the top of your worksheet, there's a line there, super important line, might be the most important of the, the whole day, but I already wrote it out for you. Have confidence to preach the truth. Have confidence to proclaim the truth, and here's why. Four reasons. This text is going to give us four reasons. First of all, point number one is this. Have confidence to preach the truth because God calls you to speak. Because God calls you to speak. That's point number one. You might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jeremiah is called to speak. I'm not called to speak. God's not writing this to me. You might be really good with your hermeneutics and say, um, yeah, but this is not about me. This is about Jeremiah. Well, guess what? Let's look at some New Testament passages where you specifically, as a Christian, are called to speak. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We'll turn back to Jeremiah later, but everyone look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, 18. It reminds me of... Uh, mentioned my wife is, is pregnant, and uh, if you're pregnant, people do some weird things to you. Uh, and here's what I mean. They, they give suggestions, and they, they ask weird questions, very personal biological and anatomical questions, right? So um, before you get pregnant, remember that. Um, one weird thing that happens, okay, is people think, and this is not to to diss on any of you, some of you do this to my wife, it's fine. But some people think that they have the right to come up and touch a stranger. You ever heard this? Okay. And it's like, oh, it's a baby. Like, let me just touch. It's like, dude, what? touching my wife's stomach. Like, imagine if I did that. Like, oh, it looks like you had a great meal. Like, bro, like, what do you? No. It's like a weird invasion, right? Um, and most people have enough common sense that they don't do it if, like, they're not close to the person. It's like giving someone a hug, right? It's like, uh, it's a very personal thing. But, like, you know, if you're walking on the street and just some random person gum comes up to my wife and gives her a hug, I'm going to be like, dude, like, what are you doing? Right? It's all really weird when, like, guys touch uh, belly. It's just weird. Um, so can I just tell you, there's a weird feeling of, like, who, like what gives you the right to, like, uh, you know, like, touch my belly? What gives you the right to touch, like, my wife's belly? Um, here, here's the deal. Uh, nobody really does. You kind of don't have the right. Like, if she lets you, okay, fine, but it's kind of weird if you don't have permission, right? Okay, here's the problem. Some of us feel that way with sharing the truth because we feel like we need to get people's permission first to share the truth. That's a very common sense way of thinking about it, okay? And that sometimes stops us from preaching the truth because it's like, well, if they don't want me to say something, then I don't have the right to, okay? There's an element of truth in that, but here's the problem. God gave you the right to talk to them. In fact, if someone were to come up to you, and this happens sometimes when you're sharing the truth with somebody, maybe you're, you're having an evangelism conversation, and they say to you, who gives you the right to tell me that I'm a bad person? Who gives you the right to say that Jesus is the only way? Who gives you the right? Matthew 28 tells you who gives you the right, okay? In fact, not the right, but the command. Look at Matthew 28, look at verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Very important right there. Because the person who told you this literally said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Guess what? Jesus says, I have authority over every last person you could ever talk to. That's significant because what he's about to command 
is for the world. Look what he says. Go, therefore, 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 according to what? I have all authority. He says, I'm the boss. I'm the ruler of all. So here's what I'm telling you to do now. You go tell my world about me. If someone were to ask you, who gives you the right to say that I'm a sinner, to say that Jesus is the only way, to say that I need to repent, you can say, well, the, the God of the universe, the one who made you, he's, he said, he said he has all authority on heaven and earth, and he told me I have to come tell you this. That's what the Bible says. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the command. When we talk about preaching the truth, okay, it has to do with that. You don't just go up to people and say, hey, you're a horrible person. Bye, see ya, peace out, right? Um, that's not the gospel, right? It's to go make them a disciple of Jesus. Who gives you the right? Jesus gives you the right and the command. You do need to go make disciples. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this, three things, going and then baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That means seeing them become real Christians. And then, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's what's involved in discipling, right? You see a person who doesn't know God. You introduce them, so to speak. You tell them about God. They come into a relationship with God through Jesus. They're baptized. What that means is, right, they're put into this new family. And then they're taught all that Jesus taught us, right? Then you go impart the truth beyond just the gospel. You do what Hebrews chapter 6 says. You, you set aside the, the, the doctrine of repentance and faith and go on to deeper things, right? You continue to disciple and teach. That's the command. That's what I'm commanded, but you might say, well, you're the pastor. No, you're commanded that too, if you're a Christian. And it's not my command to you, right, because that doesn't hold much weight, right? I, I say, hey, get, get an iced latte, um, and they're like, no, I want a mocha. Okay, well, hey, do whatever you want, right? Um, my commands don't make that much of a difference, but here's the thing. It's not my command to you. It's not your parents' command to you. It's not your small group leader's command to you. It's not some church's command to you. It's Jesus' command to you, and he says he has all authority. So who gives you the right? Well, Jesus gives you the right. It's uncomfortable, though, right? And I think a lot of us stop and we say, I can't share the gospel with that person because they'll get offended or they'll get upset because I have to tell them about their sin, too. Well, that's, that's the message. And, and who gives you the right? Jesus gives you the right. Another passage I want you to turn to. If you're in Matthew chapter 28, look at to the right real quick. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. You might say, wait a minute. Um, that says make disciples, but... Uh, Maybe I can get out of this somehow. Um, I don't think we can get out of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 is where we're looking. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. I want you to see these texts and even see them from your Bible because I want you to be reminded this is not my suggestion to you or my thoughts for you. This is what God says. This is what God says for me. This is what he says for you. And if I fall short, I'll be held responsible. If you fall short, you'll be held responsible. Okay? This is from God to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 18. Look at verse 17. Start there. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's salvation. Right? They're saved now. They're a new creation. God has done something new. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Now this person's a Christian. Verse 18. All of this is from God. What's implied is it's not from me. Salvation is from God, not from me. Not from Paul, but it's from God. Who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, okay? So who's qualified to go and preach the truth? Who's qualified to go say, hey, you need to be reconciled to God. You're not in a right relationship with God right now. You need to get in a right relationship with God. Who's qualified for that? Well, anyone who has been reconciled to God. Read it again. Look at verse 18 again. It's very important. It says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, right? Well, do you have to be an evangelist? Well, yes, you do, right? Do you have to go door to door? Well, that's not what I'm saying. Do you have, like, you have to do something though. You, you have to do something in order to be obeying this command, right? To make disciples, so to be the agent of reconciliation. So here's what I mean by reconciliation, okay? To be reconciled means to take two people who are enemies and to see them become friends. Here's what God says. Here's what I'm doing. I'm taking you. You used to be an enemy of God, right? If you're a Christian, you used to be an enemy of God. You were a sinner. You were against God. God said, obey your parents. You said, I don't want to. God says, uh, keep my name holy. You said, I'm going to blaspheme, right? You used to be in the state where kind of all you were doing was against God, right? But God did something to you if you're a Christian. He changed your heart. You're a new creation. Now you've been reconciled to God, right? You and God are on the same page. Who did that? Well, Christ did that, right? God did that. Now, here's what God says. Now you go be an agent of reconciliation. Now you go take other people and say, you need to get right with God. And I can, I can help you with that. I'm right with God now. I'm reconciled to him. So now I want to see you get reconciled with God because he's your maker and he's given all authority. He has all authority and he's told us to make disciples and it's the best thing for you to be right with God. Right? Sometimes we don't believe that. Sometimes we talk all about how hard it is to be a Christian. You understand that being a Christian is the best thing that you could possibly do. It's the only life meant it's the only life that you can live in the way that God has actually designed you to be in a right relationship with him. It's, it is the best thing. As hard as it is, it is the best thing. So he says in verse number 19, check it out in the text, it says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, right? not counting their trespasses against them. That means sins. Does he pardon their sins somehow? And then here's what he did to us. He entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. God could have saved people in a lot of different ways. He could have decided to do it exclusively by himself and never to use you. The moment you're saved, he could take your right to heaven if that was God's plan. But God had a different plan. He says, I want you to be a part of the process. That's amazing. That's a privilege that you and I can be a part of the process. The most important thing that God is doing in this entire world, more important than your sport, more important than getting a lot of money, more important than whatever field you'll go in, is your ministry of reconciliation. How many people are you going to bring to God and see reconciled? How many people? Who are you going to bring? Your family members, your friends? That is the most important thing of anything. Because he's given you, entrusted to you, that message of reconciliation. Therefore, look at verse 20. This might be the most famous verse in the section. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Like God's appeal for people to get saved. How does God do it? Well, he does it through his messengers. That's amazing. Like, stop and think about that. God could, God could have done a lot of different ways, but he chose in his sovereignty to use you and to use me, right? People who were former rebels and sinners and to show his glory and grace in the world, he uses you and me to now go preach the truth. Wow, that's amazing. He says, we implore you, middle of verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's what you're doing when you're preaching the truth. You're telling people the truth, and then you're imploring them. You're saying, hey, you got to do this. You have to. Please, you have to. You plead with them. You show them the truth. You implore them on behalf of Christ. You need to be reconciled to God. And then you might say, well, what should I say? What, if I'm an ambassador, how do I share this message? I love how verse 21 just is probably the most clear verse in the entire Bible about the, the message of the gospel. I really think this is the best way it's described. It's a little confusing, but once you understand it, it's it like, Light bulb. It makes perfect sense. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, 
to be sin who knew no sin. Sounds confusing, but it's like God treated Jesus like the sinner that you are and the sinner that I am. Why? So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That verse contains the great exchange where God takes your sin, puts it on Jesus, lifts Jesus' righteousness, and gives it to you, and his righteousness is just so sufficient that it can cover me, and it can cover you, and 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 people all over this world. That's the message of the gospel. How do you get reconciled to God? Well, your sins need to go on Jesus, and you need his righteousness. Okay? And he offers that, and he doesn't turn people away. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Okay? And you might say, well, that's important, that's good. Well, God has called you to speak that. God has called you, not just me, not just the person sitting next to you. If you're a Christian, if you've been reconciled to God, right now, I understand that some of you are not reconciled to God yet. I know this, this sermon is much more for those of you who are professing Christians than if you're not a professing Christian. If you're not a professing Christian, just hear this message and be reconciled to God. That's the most important thing, okay? But for those of you who are saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, what, what am I supposed to do in the world? You're supposed to bring the message of reconciliation to other people. Paul talks like this, not just here. He talks about it in Galatians 1. He says, God appointed me to be a preacher, right? And you might say, well, I don't have that certainty about my call. You can have certainty, not necessarily that you're going to be a, a preacher like Paul or a preacher like a pastor or whatever like that, but you can know for certain that you are called by God to teach and preach the gospel uh, because God says it all over the Bible. Another passage for you to write down. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That means God has designed you to be a servant for him. There are things about your personality. There are things about your skill set. There are things about your gifting that God has put together in such a way because he wants you to use it for him. He's gifted you different than he's gifted me. There's things that you're good at that I'm terrible at, okay? And you're supposed to use those things because God has put you together as his workmanship Right? Another way that word is translated sometimes, that workmanship, is his masterpiece. Right? Something that's well thought out and put together, and it's like, wow, this is amazing and useful. That's what you are for God, and you're supposed to glorify God in the world. By doing what? It says you're supposed to be prepared for these good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's like God's not only made you ready, it's like, um, it's kind of a weird, but you know in Mario Kart, right, um, where, where there's like those things that you get, right, I don't, you hit the, um, the question mark little cube things, right, and they're all laid out, you know, on the track, and you're, you, sometimes you've got to swerve over here to get it, and sometimes you've got to swerve over here to get it, right, okay, um, that's kind of the picture, that's how I envision this text, okay, now, I hope that gets stuck in your mind, right, the Mario Kart track, where like there's all these things that have been prepared beforehand for you, and here's what God wants you to do, to walk in them right? If you need to turn left to get to this opportunity and use it for God, turn left then, right? There's, a, there's the, one of those question mark boxes and what's underneath, right? And Ephesians 2.10 says a good work, right? Something good that you're going to do for God. But God has laid them out ahead of time, which is why some of us are so afraid about college and some of us are so afraid about our life and what am I going to do for work. Just don't worry about it so much. Just worry about doing whatever God wants you to do. And that might be confusing and scary because it's like, what does God want me to do? Well, whatever comes next, right? You don't have to worry about six cubes down the line on your Mario Kart track, right? 
if you just like were to hear that in the middle of a sermon, you would have, be very confused, okay? Um, but hopefully you're tracking with me on this, right? You don't have to worry about six million steps down the line. Just worry about the next thing that God wants you to do. And here's something that I know God wants you to do. He wants you to be a minister or a, a ambassador, someone who brings the message of reconciliation to other people. Jeremiah had to be assured of that. I mean, think about all the times in his ministry where he could have given up. He could have given up when he was betrayed by the king. He could have been given up when the king took his message and what he wrote down and little by little took out his pocket knife and just started cutting it off and throwing it in the fire, page by page by page. You could say, well, God, you clearly didn't call me to this because um, this is not working out. Jeremiah has to trust God and say, nope, I am called to this because I remember God called me. And for you, you cannot point back to an experience like Jeremiah can. You can point back to right here. The Bible says that you're called, right? Which is honestly a little bit easier than pointing back to an experience. Well, about you, but I would doubt my experience. I would say, did, did I imagine that? Was that really just me? Well, God has done something even more beneficial for you. He's put it in black and white. He's put it on paper that you can know you're called to speak the truth. Back in the passage, Jeremiah 1, 6, Jeremiah gives excuses. Um, and his excuses are valid ones. But God says they're not valid with me. They might be reasonable, you might be able to convince your parents and your friends, well, this sounds reasonable. I don't have to preach the truth because I'm just a youth. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. I mean, how could God expect you to, to do that? Well, God said so, and that's the problem. If God calls you to do something and you give excuses for why you can't do it, the problem is if God called you to that and he's the one who's equipping you, you can't tell him, oh, I, I just, I'm not able to do that. It doesn't work that way. Um, point number two, I'd love for you to write this down. Have confidence to preach the truth because God overcomes your excuses. Have confidence to preach the truth because God will overcome your excuses. To him, it was that he was a youth. 15, 16, 17, 18. Not married yet. That was another thing that we know about Jeremiah. I don't know how to speak. Remember there's another time in the Bible? This time it was an old man, an 80-year-old man who was called by God to speak. And remember what he said, Moses, in Exodus 4? I can't, I can't. I have a lisp. I have a speech impediment. I can't speak. I'm too afraid because if I go and I know that I'm going to be triggered by um, stress and if I go and try to speak, it's, it's going to come out weird and I, I, I can't. That's what Moses said, right? Very real, relevant excuse. And you can say, well, Moses, I mean, you know, you're not expected to, to do that. You've got a speech impediment. God would understand. God made your speech impediment, right? If, if he's sovereign, so clearly, then you shouldn't do it. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what God says. He says, I've called you to do it. I don't care that you got a speech impediment. Um, you're going to do it, and I will help you. I will equip you. It's the same thing that God says to Jeremiah. I'll be with you. He says to Moses, I'll be with you. But guess what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Before I get ahead of myself, Exodus 4, uh, verse 10 to 12 is the passage I was quoting. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in my past or since you've spoken to me. Like I couldn't even tell people what you just told me. I'm slow as speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? Or who makes him deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And here's the thing. God's called you to speak the truth, which this text says he has in some form or another. Then you just need to remember, who, who gave you your mouth? Who gave you your abilities? Who, who, who formed your brain in such a way that you're even able to think and to hear and to communicate? Right? God did that. So guess what? If he calls you to do something, he's going to equip you to do it as well. 
You might say, well, um, what if I'm nervous? Well, Jeremiah was really nervous, really nervous. Paul, really nervous, right? Whoever you think is bold is probably not as bold as you think they are, right? They're, they're probably not. And if they are, they're, they're just usually proud, right? Um, but boldness comes from God in this task. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, when I came into the city, I came with much fear and trembling. Okay? Can that give you a little bit of comfort? That if I say, hey, this fall, you need to evangelize or you need to share the truth with people who sit next to you at school. You, you got to do it because God has given you such an opportunity. You got to do it. And you're trembling and you're thinking, uh-oh, I don't want to lose this relationship. I, I hope this doesn't you know, mess things up. Well, it might, it might though right? That, that's not a part of the deal. Jesus doesn't say share the truth only if it doesn't mess up the relationship. He doesn't say that, right? He says share the truth, okay? And you're getting nervous and sweaty and like, oh, I don't, know if, I don't know if I can do this. Well, Paul said the same thing. He went into these foreign cities. Could you imagine going to a city and trying to preach the truth of the gospel to people who have no background information? That's the freakiest thing ever. But he did because God had his people. In fact, you might say, well, I'm not equipped to do this because, and you fill in the blank, right? Um, I'm not cool enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not popular enough. Um, nobody's going to listen to me. Everyone thinks I'm weird. Okay, you might give those excuses. Here's what God said to Paul when, when there were excuses given and worries had. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay? Let's say you don't speak as well as someone else. Here's what God says. Guess what? My power is made perfect in weakness. I love to use weak people my favorite type of people to use. In fact, God rarely uses the strong and the powerful and the popular and the mighty. He doesn't always use them very much. You know why God uses the poor and the weak and the people who can't speak as well and the people who are nervous a lot? You know why God uses them? So that all the world will know it wasn't them, it was God. He does it all the time. In fact, another passage for you to write down, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. This passage, Paul's talking to that Corinthian group that he's later going to say, I was really nervous before that, just a couple of verses before. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. If you're a Christian in Corinth, you're hearing that, you say, did Paul just call us stupid? Uh, did he just? He kind of did, right? He says, guess what? Uh, God, God chooses a lot of different types of people. And you might think, I can't be effective for God because I'm, I'm not like in the 1% of, uh, of popularity or looks or smarts. or what. Like, guess what? Here's what Paul said. It doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter. Right? God chooses the weak. What is it? Why? Well, to shame the strong. Verse number 27 says, but God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He goes on. God chose what is low and despised. Despised means to be looked down upon. Everyone looks down upon these people. He says, God chose you. Why? He says, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of the Lord. You know, if you feel inadequate, right? God says, okay, feel inadequate, fine. Uh, but then when you start to work for me and do things for me, don't try to take the credit. Sometimes I use people who feel inadequate because... You're going to turn around and say, God, you did that. God, I was so afraid. And I never would have spoken up if you didn't prompt me to do that. God, you gave me the boldness. You gave me the words. 
I said no like 10 times, but the one time I said yes, wow, like I cannot believe that God helped me there. And then guess what you're doing? You're giving the glory to God. Then it says, because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? Yeah, you were inadequate. You were maybe some of these people were poor. It's like, well, yeah, because now to you, Jesus is everything to you. Jesus gave you your righteousness. He gave you your wisdom. He gave you your riches, so to speak. He's given you everything. So don't give excuses. I, I don't want to run past this without noticing the youth excuse. Right? That's why we could look at this passage and not Moses' passage. I chose this because I thought that might be an excuse that some of us give. Well, God wouldn't speak through me because I'm only a freshman. God wouldn't speak through me. I mean, I could share the gospel, but my grandma and grandpa, they're not going to get saved through me because I'm only 15. I'm only six. I'm only 17 years old. You can't expect me to like what? Go preach the truth and people get saved. You can't expect that from me. I'm only a youth. So Jeremiah said, um, I want to remind you, maybe write some of these things down. Um, I'm going to give you a list of people that God used in huge ways. Some of the biggest characters in all the Bible. And they were young. And, and they started doing amazing things, okay? Um, it shows these in order of age. Um, a 12-year-old kid in the city of Shiloh named Samuel. You know Samuel? Um, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. But everyone knew God spoke through Samuel. A 12-year-old kid going to tell Eli, the priest, hey, uh, God's going mm, to destroy your family and your, your kids are going to die and the ark of the Lord is going to get taken away. Oh, well, great. 12-year-old Samuel, chosen by God to do that. There's a girl in the New Testament, um, probably about 14 years old, named Mary. Remember Mary? 14-year-old, uh, freshman, uh, chosen to do what? Well, probably the biggest thing on the list, to bear the Messiah. To be the, the mother of, of the God of the world. Like, okay, that's pretty big, right? Mary. Um, God chose her. And there's like a couple lines in the book of Luke about why God chose her. And they're, they're kind of, you have to read into it a little bit. But it's like, because she's of humble estate. Because she was humble. Um, she wasn't the person that everyone would have chosen to be like the best. But she was humble. Maybe she was quiet. We don't know all about her personality other than that she was godly. And she was a little bit under the radar. God chose her. There was a kid who was about 15, 16, maybe a sophomore or junior in high school, who was out tending the flocks, doing the thing that all his older brothers didn't want to do. The youngest of a big group of brothers, tall, strong brothers. A kid named David in the Old Testament. Chosen by God, not because he was strong or mighty, even though God would make him strong and mighty, by the way. Chosen because he was a man after God's own heart. Well, he was a young man after God's own heart, just to be honest. Really young, 15, 16, out in the field. He wasn't even called in for the job interview, but God said, nope, I've chosen you. I've appointed you. You're going to do it for me. Junior, senior in high school, four guys at the end of uh, Jeremiah's ministry, the middle of Jeremiah's ministry, rather. Um, you know them as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael was their name that their mama gave them. Uh, four young men, probably the age of some of you, seniors in high school, juniors in high school, you guys. Um, God chose these four guys to go into a foreign land to represent him, to be the only people that did not bow the knee 
to the foreign leader. God chose them. Why wouldn't God choose the really mature, old, you know, wise, you know, old leaders? Well, because that's just not what God chose, right? And we can say, well, but I don't think he should have done it that way. Well, take that up with God, right? Why did God choose such a young girl like Mary? Why did God choose such a young man like Samuel? Why did he choose David? Why did he choose Daniel? Why did he choose Solomon? Right? Solomon was probably 19 or 20 when he became king. And you know what he says to God? God, I'm, I'm like just a kid. I don't have the wisdom to do this. I feel like I'm a kid trying to lead this entire nation, this entire flock. God, please give me wisdom. Do you know that story? Do you know what happens next? What does God do? Because you asked for wisdom, you asked for the right thing, you're humble. I'm going to give you wisdom, but I'll also give you all the other stuff that a king could ever want, more than anyone else had. There's another young man in the New Testament. He wasn't so young. He's probably in his 20s, maybe early 30s. His name was Timothy. But there's a big deal made about how he's young. And maybe he wasn't just young. Maybe he was also young and also a little bit timid. We don't know for sure. But the New Testament kind of presents it that way. Paul says to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, a passage that I, I wish all of you would memorize and know and, and, and commit to living out in your life. Paul tells this guy, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Don't let anyone look down on you for your youth. Okay, are people going to despise you for your youth? Totally. Okay. How can you not let them do that? Is it by saying, hey, don't look down on me? No, that's not how you do it. Okay. Let no one look down on you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Okay. It, if you are setting an example... To even people your parents' age, and you share the gospel and they don't, and you've got love and forgiveness that's really hard for them, and you have patterns of speech that are good and godly and righteous that don't match theirs, and you set them an example, guess what? It's kind of hard for them to look down on you. For Timothy, as a young pastor, that was really important. More important than if he was 50 or 60 years old. God does a lot of work through young people, and you cannot give that excuse to God. And if you have given that excuse in the past, just... Get it out of your vocabulary. Say, I'm, I'm going to be used for God if he wants me to. Never doubt that God will use you. In fact, sometimes he uses young people on purpose to shame people who are older, who are not doing the work. Whether Jeremiah or a True North student, the most important thing basically is whether or not God is with you to accomplish these things. Because we could say, be bold, be strong, and then you get knocked down so many times, it's like, well, I'm going to give up on this because this didn't work out. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 1 is all about how God is with him. Okay, point number 3, I want you to write this down. Uh, have confidence to preach the truth because God promises to be with you. Have confidence to preach the truth because God promises to be with you. You might say, where did he make that promise to me? Because in Jeremiah, he made the promise. In Jeremiah 1.8, where did he make the promise to me? I mentioned it before, but Matthew 28.20. 20. If you're ever ashamed or scared or thinking, I don't know if I can share the gospel, read Matthew 28.20 20 again. Jesus says, after he says, teach them all that I, I've commanded you, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How, how long did these disciples live? Well, James didn't live very long, maybe like eight or 10 or 12 years after this. Some of these guys lived a little longer. Maybe John was probably lived the longest of all the disciples. Maybe he lived another 70 years, perhaps. Which, by the way, John was probably a teenager when he was a disciple. We, we forget that oftentimes, but he was probably really young because he died around 100 AD. He's probably pretty young when Jesus was around. Uh, when is the end of the age? Has the end of the age taken place? Well, no. It hasn't happened yet. When is it going to happen? It could happen 
in 10 years, could happen in 20 years. You know, it could happen in another 2,000 years, right? Don't tell your parents, but that's possible, okay? I know they don't believe it, but it's possible, right? The end of the age could be a very, very long time from now. You might have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and I mean, this, this world might go on for a lot longer. That's possible. But Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. You're scared. You're nervous. Jesus, I'm with you till the end of the age. When people tell you not to believe what the Bible says, God's with you. When people say, well, I know the Bible says that that's sin, but, but, but I, that, that's probably fine. God doesn't care about that. Uh, well, God is with you. When you tell people of the hope that they can have to be totally forgiven in Christ, guess what? God is with you. When you tell people to turn or repent from their sins, God's with you. When you tell them to trust in Jesus for salvation, God is with you. Later in his ministry, Jeremiah was scared at times. Horrible things happened to him. But there's a confidence that grew in him. That by Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, you can write that down. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah said, if I were to say, I will not mention him. Or I won't speak in the Lord's name again. He's given a hypothetical situation. If I were to say that, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire that is shut up in my bones. And I am weary in holding it in. Instead of saying, oh, that took a lot of energy and effort to say the truth. It's like, no, no, no. It takes more energy and effort to shut up. He says, because I'm, it's like I'm holding in a fire inside of my bones. Did that happen all at once? No, because at the beginning, Jeremiah is saying, I can't speak. I'm too, I'm too young. I don't know how to talk. But by practice and repetition, it's like God has emboldened him in such a way that he's going to speak for God, whether you wanted to or not. Because I'm weary with holding in, and I cannot hold it in. If you're nervous that you don't have the words and you think, well, God touched Jeremiah's mouth and gave him specific things. He doesn't give me the same kind of revelation that he gave to Jeremiah. Well, you're right. But I'd say he might have given you something better. He's given you his full and complete scriptures. He's given you something that you can study even now. But what about in the moment? What about when I'm afraid in the moment? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10? Matthew 10, 19 and 20. He says, when they deliver you over, when they want to persecute you, he says, don't be anxious about what you're to speak or to say, for you are to say what will be given to you in that hour. The disciples really live that out. But I think that promise applies even further to those who are in Christ, who are in crisis. I'll give you the words. He says, for it's not you who speak, but it's the spirit of your father who's speaking through you. If you've ever shared the gospel or been afraid or been nervous, and it's like you shared, and it's like, I, I, I can't believe what I just said. I, I, I wasn't even thinking about that before, but God spoke through me. He gave me the words. Right? Well, remember, 1 Corinthians 1, God did that. God's spirit gave you the words in that hour. I mean, that's amazing that God continues to do that, but he does. You might say, well, what am I supposed to say? Hopefully you know something of what to say. But in verse 9 and 10 in Jeremiah, he says, he touched him, gave him words, and said, I've set you over nations to pluck up, to tear down, but also to build up. Um, He had a very sure and confident message that was not going to change. Um, you too, as a Christian, have a sure and confident message that will not change. Point number four is this. Come on, you'd have confidence 
to preach the truth because you are delivering God's sure message. Like this message is sure, it's not gonna change. You don't have to be concerned that maybe it will become outdated. God has given you a message that will not change, will not alter. The question for us is how convinced are you of that? I think some of us don't share the truth the way we should because we're not as convinced as we need to be. And that makes sense. Remember Jeremiah's message. It was a friendly message. It said, hey, uh, Judah, God's going to take you out. He says some horrible things, even in the book of Jeremiah that you can read, and the book of Ezekiel says similar things. God's going to judge this nation. He's going to send a foreign king in. He's going to tear open people limb from limb. Like, that was Jeremiah's message, right? Um, You know, you have a message that's just as sure, but I think actually brings even more hope than Jeremiah's message did. Your message about eternal salvation and eternal judgment, you know, comes with the eternal salvation side, which might even be a little nicer and more hopeful than even Jeremiah's message. If you're not convinced, I guess, three things happen. If you're not convinced, first thing you'll do is you just won't say the truth when, when opportunity arises, right? Maybe we've all found ourselves in a position like that where we think this is a great open door or opportunity to share the gospel, but sometimes we shy away. That happens, but, but for some of us, if we don't really believe, that becomes a pattern, of fear and timidity, and then we don't speak up as much as we should. The second thing that happens, if we're not convinced that this is true, the gospel is true, we start to take elements of the gospel and kind of bend and twist them just a little bit so that we can say, oh, well, we we can still be on the same page here. Um, We start to bend the truth. First thing is we, we don't say what we should. Second thing is we start to bend the truth a little bit because then it won't be as, as hard, right? Because the gospel says that um, people are going to go to heaven or hell, that Jesus is the only way, that apart from faith in Christ, you cannot be saved, right? That's very hard. Well, what if we just kind of make some exceptions on the, the end and say, well, yeah, God's doing something amazing, but like, you don't have to believe in Jesus, like, for sure to be saved. You know, you can just try to be a, a pretty good person, right? As long as you're being a good person, that's good enough, right? Well, that's, you've taken the truth, you've cut off the hard edges, now you no longer have the truth. But that's what we start to do if we're not fully convinced. I think the third thing that happens after that, so we we shut up first, we bend the message second. Third thing that happens if you're not really convinced is you will stop altogether proclaiming the truth and then you'll be ashamed of all the times that you did share the truth, right? This is where a lot of people are that I can think of um, who used to sit in the seats that you're in who now look back and say, I cannot believe I was such a stupid Christian who shared the gospel with people. I can't believe I did that. They've gone down all the steps here of stopping sharing the truth, bending the truth, and now they look back in shame on, on their time, you know, trying to live like a Christian. Uh, that's the, the steps of, of, of walking away or falling away from the truth. And my point here is um, you need to be solidly convinced that this is true before you become a spokesman for it, right? That's why my command is not for you. Those of you who are not Christians, I'm not telling you to go share the gospel. Right? God could use you. Right? And he often does. He often uses non-Christians to share the truth. That's not my thing for you. What I'm telling you is you need to believe the truth wholeheartedly. If you have questions and doubts about that, talk to a leader. Work through those, but then come out the other side without the doubt, but with the faith, the trust, the assurance, the conviction that yes, there is a God. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, everyone does need to turn to Jesus in repentance and repentance and faith. 
yes, I do believe that, and come out the other side firmly convinced. And guess what? Never walk away from that. Have a conviction for the rest of your life. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God, the message itself. That's why some of you might have been saved talking to people who walked away from the faith because it wasn't them that saved you. It was the gospel message because the gospel message is the power of God. Are there any other passages that says the gospel is the power of God? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Paul says in that text, for the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. People will think you're stupid. The Bible said so. Like that's what Paul said. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. The message, the gospel, the truth. There's a God that we have a problem with that God, that Jesus came to solve that problem, that we're supposed to turn from our sins and trust in Jesus as the only solution. And now that we're supposed to live for him, that's the gospel message that will not change. You can deny it. You can walk away from it, but it will not change. It's the sure message. And yes, it might sound foolish to some people, but it's the only power of God. Those of you who are saved know that. You, you know that you used to walk in your sin, but you don't in the same way anymore. You know that you didn't know the truth about God and you didn't understand your purpose here, but now you do. The gospel is the power of God. I told you at the beginning that one of the excuses I gave to myself about not putting myself down as a witness for that little fender bender was because I was not totally confident in what happened. And when I think back to it now, obviously it's fuzzy, it was a long time ago, but I'm not totally sure who backed into who. I'm not sure if it was Kevin who backed into the other guy or was the other guy backed into Kevin, or they both backed into each other. I don't really know. Um, but because I wasn't convinced, I did not have the right kind of confidence that I can go, go out on a limb for this guy. Um, when it comes to the gospel, you need to, again, reaffirm your commitment and your trust and your belief in it. So you might say, I've been a Christian for a long time. Well, think of the gospel again. Reaffirm your commitment to the truth and let that inspire you with confidence and boldness to go out and preach the truth. Let's pray that we'll do that well. God, please give us the boldness we need to share the truth. I pray as we approach this week of Revival Summer Camp that it would be a week where you do a lot of amazing work that the message of reconciliation would be clear, not just from Pastor Mike when he's preaching, but also from these small groups and from the one-on-one -on -one conversations that happen. I pray for these students who are praying along with me that they would be sure that they trust the gospel, that they'd be sure they trust you. And I pray for those who are not sure that this week of revival will be a helpful one for them to figure out where they stand with you. And if they realize they're your enemy and their opponents with you, that they would submit and trust in you. I pray that you would harvest many souls to yourself through this week and through all the good work that you're going to do. Please continue to save, continue to sanctify, and those who are Christians here, I pray that they would get so bold and passionate about the truth that they would know it, be convinced of it, and that they would never, ever turn away from you. Please, God, use this group to do amazing things for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.